today we are finishing up the book of James. Who says yes for that? I say yes for that because I'm the one who's had to do quite a few of the chapters here. And let me tell you, this is a difficult book to try and preach from because it's not a comforting type of book. It's a, it's a kick in the face, right? It's a, it's a spiritual kick in the face, and there's some really difficult things. And guess what? Especially just for you, we're leaving it to the end, which is the last chapter, chapter five, which is even the biggest kick in the face when it comes to spiritual stuff. So that's what we're going to be getting into today. Chapter 5 of the book of James. Are you ready? Say, oh yeah. Here we go. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. That's a verse to to, to, uh, meditate on, isn't it? Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm. Second time he said patient. Actually, third time here. Because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, As an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance, and you've seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. But above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. And all God's people said, amen. This is the final chapter of this book. What a challenging chapter this is. We're finishing up here. And we're finishing up, and I've told you before that when we're reading James, James is not very linear. It's not 
kind of logical, one step after the next. It's a very cyclical type of book where it goes to one subject, jumps to another subject. And that's why sometimes they really, when you're reading a book like this, they don't really, the things you're reading don't seem to melt together. One subject doesn't seem to have anything to do with the other because he's writing to specific situations that the reader really knows what he's talking about. We're on the other side and only on one side of that conversation. So there are Three specific topics, though, that seem, to be, that, that seem to be identifying themselves when we're looking at the Scripture. The first one is prosperous oppressors. The second one is patience and perseverance. And the third one is prayer. The third one is prayer. So let's look at the first one. The first one is prosperous oppressors. Now listen, <clears throat> your gold and silver are corroded their corrosion will testify against you, he says, and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived in, on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Now, one of the things that would seem to make it be easy to read into this is that God is somehow against wealth and riches, right? And in fact, there are many... Christians, there are many denominations and churches throughout history who have actually really subscribed to that. They have they've preached it and they've promoted that, that God is against the rich and he is for the poor. It would even seem like Jesus even said that when he said it, it's very hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. Never said he can't, he just said it's very hard for him and, and, and I get that. <clears throat> But I believe it would be wrong of us to subscribe to that, even though in history there has been groups that have said it. In fact, there was one particular style of teaching, and it's called liberation theology that came from South America, that basically said that if you are rich, then you're automatically against the poor. And Jesus always stepped in to defend the poor, so Jesus is for the poor and he's against the rich. And yet you'll get theologies that will come from America that is what we call maybe prosperity theology that says, no, God wants you to be rich. And it's amazing how we can take different scriptures from, from the Bible and we can, we can start melding it into the way that we want it to, to say. We want it to defend what we actually believe. But I actually don't believe that James is against riches or against wealth. Why? Well, in the Old Testament, God said that he wanted to make a nation for himself, and he said he wanted to make that nation prosperous. He wanted to make it wealthy. In fact, he wanted it to be wealthy, to be a source for the rest of the world. And also, they had the richest king at one time that existed on earth. His name was Solomon. He built the temple. He was the richest guy in the world at the time. And God blessed him, and he anointed him. Even Jesus had many parables where he talked about rich people. Some of them were bad, but some of them were actually good. Jesus even had very rich benefactors in his posse when he was walking around. He didn't just have 12 disciples. He actually had 72 disciples at one time, but most of them left him, and he was left with 12. But many of them were very wealthy. So I can't believe that he is that James, the brother of Jesus, is saying that riches or wealth is a bad thing. What I believe he's talking about is that it's mishandling wealth is the problem that he's trying to address here. Now, remember when he's writing to the, these people, he's writing to different Christians that are, that, are, that are basically Jews that have gone throughout the world. They've gone, they've spread out through the diaspora, throughout the Roman Empire, and they've made, they've, 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 they've chased after their riches. They've chased after their wealth, and they've chased after their treasure in different places, and they've, they've become Christians, or they've started churches, and they've gotten into these churches, and he's seeing problems of their faith being matched with their wealth and how it's not actually working together. 
Now, I want you to remember as well, a few weeks ago, I said this, that by the world standards, we are actually some of the wealthiest. In fact, we are the wealthiest in the world. So we can take the scripture and apply it to us as a warning for ourselves because we are part of that great wealth. Now, there are two witnesses that James is talking about in this, this paragraph. Two witnesses that stand against those that are not handling their wealth properly or not handling uh, their, their, their Christianity properly. The two witnesses are their own wealth and their workers. Right at the beginning, he says, your gold and your silver are corroded. Corroded. Now, that's a strange thing to say because gold and silver doesn't corrode. It doesn't rust. That's why it's a precious metal. My ring is made of gold. I hope it's made of gold. Yep, I think it is, okay. It's made of gold. And the reason why we make things out of gold for like jewelry is because it doesn't corrode and it doesn't rust. Why did he say that this is going to be something that rusts and corrode? The answer is, is because he was talking about how it will speak for you or against you in the future. And he's saying it's gonna corrode you in the future on the day of judgment. It's a little bit like, None of us expect that, that gold or silver would say anything about us. I mean, what can they say? It can't speak. It's a little bit like having a little brother or sister. You know when you're, you're young and you sneak a cookie or something like that and your little brother or sister is standing there and they catch you and they don't just go and wink and walk away. What do they do? They go, oh, I thought you'd take a cookie. Right? Have you ever had a sibling that's like that? They scream and they shout and they, they speak out about what they have actually seen. I, mean, I, remember, I remember when I was, when I was a child and, and I, I, when I woke up in the morning, um, I, I put my, 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 my breeks on, right? We call them the breeks in Scotland, right? The pants. And there was a tiny little rip in the, in the, the seam. And I went to my mom and I said, oh, there's a little rip in my seam. I can't wear these. And she said, don't worry, no one will notice. Yeah, 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 that's right. Thanks, mom, right? So I go to school and you're playing with the other kids and I go to pick up the ball and this kid sees a little underwear poking through my brakes, right? And he's like, oh, Brunton's got a rip in his pants. I saw his underpants and they're screaming and shouting. I'm like, <laughs> that's what your gold and silver is gonna be like. They're gonna be pointing out your underwear in your spiritual pants, Right? Oh, I see that inside of you. And this is what he's saying. He said, they're going to testify against you. They're going to say something and say what it is that you did with it. How are they going to testify? He says, you've been hoarding wealth in the last days. And has anyone seen that, that show, Hoarders? You ever watched that show, Hoarders? And the, it's about people who amass too much stuff. I think sometimes my wife just watches it so it makes us feel better about how tidy our house really is in comparison to them, right? Do you ever watch it and they, they amass all this stuff in their house and it's, it's either cats or it's newspapers or it's just junk and it just fills up and fills up. The dictionary says that hoarding is this. It's an accumulation that is hidden carefully, or guard, sorry, it's hidden or carefully guarded for future use. And this is what I think Paul, uh, uh, James is getting at. He's getting at two different issues. Because we have stored up so much wealth for ourselves, we're doing it because we, number one, don't really depend on God. The more wealth that we gather in, again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have wealth, but the more we gather in, the more we get to the place where we, we, need, we become less dependent on God. The more stuff that we have, the more we don't have to interact with Him because we filled our lives up already. 
Do you remember the days when you were a student or when you first got married and all you did was live off of Raymond noodles and you were just in love and it was just so wonderful and happy and you didn't need anything else but just this person and you were just so alive and, and all that stuff. But the older you get, the more stuff you gather in. You're like, oh, I can't live without the nice comfortable bed. I can't live without air conditioning. I can't live without this. I can't live without... We're becoming more dependent on stuff in our lives. And the problem is because we're becoming more dependent on stuff in life and not on God, he's saying the second thing to us, which is because you're not dependent on God, neither are you about the business of God. Now you're distracted with the stuff that you've got in your life. Now, now the more stuff you've got, the more you have to look after. If you've got two cars, you're paying twice. You've got three cars, you're paying... Thrice. If you're paying four cars, you're paying thrice, whatever the word for four is, right? So you're paying more stuff. You've got bigger house, you've got bigger stuff. You're having to clean more, you're having to do more. And I'm not saying if you don't have the money, you shouldn't have that. I'm not against that. It's about that we have forgotten about the business of God. And let me tell you, Christians, you're meant to be about the business of God. This lifetime is just the width of a hair compared to the eternity that we're meant to live with Jesus Christ in his glory. We only have now to do the business of God here on earth before his kingdom comes. Hello, Christians, come on. We have to start ourselves up and speak to our well, speak to our lives and say, you're not going to serve me, you're going to serve the kingdom of God. And this is what James is getting at. He's saying, you have forgotten, you have forgotten that you're, all the wealth that God wants to give you, why would he give you more if you're only using it for yourself? Imagine if someone who was a gambler and they're having trouble with gambling, you know, breaking that addiction, they came up to you and said, hey, could you lend me 100 bucks? Would you give it to them? No, you wouldn't give it to them. You know why? Because it's not gonna be used well. I believe that God doesn't want to give us more when he sees that we're not handling his stuff well enough right now. Why? For two reasons. Number one, he doesn't want his stuff wasted. Number two, he's protecting you because he knows fine well that wealth that you're asking for will testify against you. Hello? That's the goodness and the grace of God. He is protecting us from more wealth testifying against us. So here's the second testament that's testifying against us, and that is their workers. Their workers are testifying against them. I wanna ask you this question. Is there anyone you owe money to? Think about it. If you do, it should have come pretty quickly to your mind, right? If you have to think really hard, then you've either forgotten or you don't. But if there is someone that's come to your mind, they're a witness against you. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, you have to pay your mortgage, you've got to pay your car. Of course, you're already in the process of that. But if there's someone that you owe money to and you're meant to give it to them and they're getting nothing back from you, they stand as a future testament against you. It actually even, now you might say, well, I don't have the money or I can't do this, I can't do that. Let me tell you, you may not have the money but God does have the money, and if he wants to, if, if you want to be able to live righteously, you're gonna to have to decide to trust him and have faith to say, whatever money you give me, I will make sure I become a righteous person. I'll make sure I stand in good standing with other people and with you. He's saying your workers that weren't paid are speaking against you even today. How much is it gonna be on the day of judgment? You follow me so far? It's a pretty testy stuff. My, my brother-in-law years ago 
before he got saved, he was, he was into fixing bikes and he took this motorbike of his friend and he was trying to fix his bike and he actually broke it and instead of actually trying to fix it and pay for it, he just took the bike and he threw it in the river. And he just said, I'm really sorry, I got stolen. Years later, he got saved, he came to Christ and he felt so convicted by it that he called his friend up and he said, I have to confess to you that I actually, it didn't get stolen, <laughs> I threw it in the river. Actually, when I say a river, the river is like a really deep river where I come from. It's actually a two-mile-wide river, and he took it off the bridge, and he threw it in the river, right? I never remember that. And I'm like, oh, what happened? What did he say? Like, I forgive you? He said, no, nope. he was blazing mad, and I had to pay him the money back. He said, so I did. But guess what? Now that he paid the money back, he doesn't have a witness against him, right? He doesn't have a testimony a testament of someone saying, this guy owes me money. Okay, I'm gonna leave it right there because that's what James did. He said it and he left it right there. Okay, number two, what's the second thing he talks about? Second thing he talks about is patience and perseverance. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. All right, how does this relate to what he just talked about? We just talked about money and not handling it properly, and then he just flips over into just talking about patience. It's simply because of this. Patience and perseverance is about what it will take to be ready for the future. See, hoarding is about protecting your future by gathering up now. What he's saying is that patience and perseverance is what will protect you for your future, it's in place of your money to some degree. Let's talk about patience. Patience is an attitude, right? We know that. It's, it's, it's something that you have to make a decision on. I choose to be patient. That's an attitude. Recently, I was, ta- I was listening to uh, a business guy uh, online on a podcast, and he was a very wealthy person, very influential person, very successful in business. And he talked about he talked about the, 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 the problem with, the, he said, today's generation is that we have lost our patience because everything is becoming so instant to us in our lives. I can instantly watch TV. I can instantly watch it wherever I want. I can instantly get food. I can order online. I can instantly get stuff of Amazon. He said, now we're applying everything in our life to that instant factor. You know, today we can, we can come up with something. He said there was a guy he was, he was, he was uh, working with and he said he had this amazing app that he had built on his phone and he said, dude, that's gonna be an awesome app in about seven years' time that's gonna be a great app. And he said his face just fell. And he said, I knew why his face fell because he wants to see it happen now. He wants it to be successful now. He said, but the fact is there's a cycle to business. There's a cycle to life and we have to be patient. Now, what James does is he talks about, look at the farmer. Isn't he patient when he plants seed and waits for the rain to come? Now, I just bought this today, and I I bought this little plant. And here, it's just a tiny little plant. It's not a fancy-looking plant. It's not a sexy-looking plant in any bit. But right here, it has a little label that promises me what I'm going to have. It tells me I'm going to have an Asclepius mealweed, something like that, right? 
And it says, oh, it's gorgeous, season-long color. Didn't tell me it was just green, right? And it says it attracts butterflies, and it only needs eight hours of daily sun, right? So I'm buying it, and I'm like, great. I'll put it in the ground, and hopefully it'll come up tomorrow, and it'll give me all these flowers and maybe some fruit. Does the, seed, does the, does, does the farmer do that? The farmer can't do that. The farmer can't plant stuff and go, get up in the morning and go, what, what? Have you not even grown yet? What's going on? I already planted you. I gave you water. I gave you food. Come on, start working, buddy. I need some fruit. And then goes away. And then the next day he comes out and he's like, what? You haven't even grown. I'm expecting at least three foot tall. I'm looking for some fruit. What is, I've given you my best. I give you my attention. I gave all this stuff. I've invested in you. Give me something back. He has to wait, right? That's what James is saying. But sometimes we do that too. On the other side of life, when we're, we're looking at our marriage and we go, you need to give me something back. I need to see fruitfulness for you. I work and I work and I work and I just give my best and all you do is just spend our money and that's all you are. We're demanding that our marriage should grow. We're demanding that our children should be better behaved. We're demanding that our jobs should be more fruitful. We're demanding that our bosses should expect that we are such a great worker that we should be given at least $150,000 and let me give you a raise and a free car and it should happen now and you just don't appreciate me. God, why haven't you promoted me? We do it even with our groups, with our disciples, with our ministry. I've spent so many years discipling you and giving you Bible studies and giving you my best. Why haven't you grown? I don't see the fruit that I want. We're demanding things, and he's saying, be patient, grasshopper. Patience is probably the hardest thing for Christians. <laughs> Am I right? Listen, we've been doing a building campaign. What were we thinking? Let's do this. Let's get a new building. We'll save up money. We'll put it together. We'll have that building within a year. That was three years ago. This has been an absolute exercise for me in being patient with whatever God is doing. God, why aren't you speeding this up? Listen, the problem isn't with us, God, <laughs> right? The problem is with you because you could release all the money. You could release all the open doors. You could make this happen. Why aren't you here? Why aren't you making this happen now? Patience, because God has timing for everything. God knows what he's doing. So he's talking about this patience. And the second thing he's talking about is perseverance. If patience is an attitude, perseverance is an action when you're actually suffering. Now, when he's speaking to them, he's talking about the future again. He's talking about what will happen in the future. Let me tell you. Listen now. Watch this. Talking about the future, there are 735 prophecies in the Bible about the end times, Right? Now, when you think about it, James walked with Jesus. Many of them even knew Jesus. They knew, they heard about him. And everyone kept on saying, he's going to come back soon because he said that. But he also said, it will be some time before I return. And so there was, a, a, there, was a, there was an antsiness within the church back then. They were like, he's going to come back soon. And then they got to the point going, he's going to come back soon. He's going, Where is he already? Why is he not here? It's amazing when someone stands you up or is late for a date or is late for a time, the first thing we look at and go, why are they not here? Or we get into a panic, like there must be something wrong, there must be something wrong. And we don't have the patience just to wait for people. 735 prophecies are about when Jesus returns. How many do you think have actually been fulfilled? Well, I'll tell you. It's 596. 
596 prophecies of Jesus' return have now been fulfilled. Over 100 prophecies are not come to pass yet, but watch this, right? Only 20 of those unfulfilled prophecies are actually to be fulfilled before he returns, right? The rest of them are about when he returns, when he actually comes here. Only 20 are left. Here's the news for you. Take it as good or as bad as you wish. All of those 20 prophecies are actually prophecies about how bad it will get. See, many of us are expecting that things will get, should be better. And sometimes we get frustrated at seeing that when you look at the news and you look at the world and you look at the politics and you look at the president and you look at your pastor and you look at your, your jobs, you look at the business, you look at the, the fractitious culture that is now fighting against each other. Like, this shouldn't be, it's not right. You're right, it shouldn't be and it's not right. But Christ said, it must come. It must come to pass. So if we become impatient, if we become angry with our culture, if we get upset and we start fighting against it, you're fighting against what Jesus prophesied. You're fighting against the fact that it says that the world will get worse. What we can't afford to do is get sucked into that culture, get sucked into that world and start numbing ourselves with addictions like money or, 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 or drugs or, or alcohol or relationships or numbing ourselves with entertainment and thinking that we're just holding on tight until Jesus comes back. Listen, he's expecting us to be about the business of the kingdom of God and get out there and tell people about Christ. Hello, Christians. Someone shout Amen. Listen, this is what we are called to do. We cannot complain as Christians because it's not going the way we want it to be. He's saying be patient and persevere. The last thing he gets into is this, prayer. Is anyone among you in trouble, he starts off with. Now, I want you to shout out the word prayer or pray every time we see it read on the screen. You ready? Here we go. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray, pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the pray. offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray. for each other so that you may be healed. The of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Powerful and effective. So what do you think this little paragraph is about? Anyone want to take a guess? Prayer. Healing prayer to be very specific. Now what he does is he gives us three qualifications for healing prayer. Three. The first one is this. He said you must have confident faith. You must have confident faith. Faith. Now, I believe this is about confidence in the sense of trusting in God. This is not a timeline faith, like it has to happen now. Hello, we just read the verse, we just read the paragraph before that said, be patient. You can't just say, no, we demand it now, I must have healing now, I must get results now. It's patience is the order of the day. And he said, but when you do ask for it, ask for it in faith. That is a confident faith, trusting that God is good and he does heal in his time. It's not a timeline. Recently, we had a, a young lady that came back to our church. She was married with several children. They moved off to California quite a few years ago and they used to be in our church and she got brain cancer. And she got brain cancer 
and, uh, and, and she asked for us to, to pray for her, and, and I prayed for her, and, and she got healed of this brain cancer. It was an absolute miracle. And she came back recently, and she said, it was absolutely amazing. I just want to thank you for the fact that you prayed for me, and I want to thank you for the fact that, that you healed me. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't do any of the healing. She's like, no, you're right. You didn't heal me. But at least you were faithful enough to pray, right? Faithful enough to pray. Usually when we have an issue, we'll call up someone for advice, we'll call up the doctor, we'll take some medicine, and I'm not saying that anything any of that is bad, but we often skip out on one little thing, which is really simple stuff. Is that right, Mr. Strombeck? You are a praying animal in the house of the Lord. Let me tell you, if you want to be prayed for, can you stand up a second? I'm sorry, I'm just jumping on this. And he's like, oh no, here we go. Okay, you need to ask this man to pray for you. You know Why? faithful prayer. Can your wife stand up as well? I'm sorry, I'm just making people stand up right now. Do you know why? Faithful prayer. I don't need the prayers to be answered right now. I just need someone to pray for me who's got a direct connection with God that I don't have in the same way. Does that make sense? That's why we're looking for faithful people. I'm sorry, you can take a seat right now. I'm just going to make you stand for the entire service. But confident prayer is something that is so important that when they speak, it's like they're speaking to their dad that they know is a good dad and is a good God, and he knows fine well within his heart that my dad is so good, he wants to bless you. And so when you hear it from someone who's got confident prayer that's not just begging for something, but they're thanking God that he is a good prayer, sorry, he is a good father, that's the type of prayer that I wanna have in my life. I wanna have confident prayer. The second thing he talks about is confessed sin, confessed sin. There was a joke that I heard quite a few years ago, or it was a while ago anyway, I heard this joke of this guy, and he was talking about three pastors that got together, and these three pastors said, you know what, we need to get better in our ministry, and the Bible says to confess our sins one to another, and the first guy goes, I have a problem with alcoholism, and I just want to repent of that, in fact, I've got a bottle in my office right now, and I just want to repent of that, and I just want to get that broken off of me, so they pray for him, and the, the second pastor goes, I have a problem with womanizing, I'm just really into women, you know what I'm saying, I just like, I can't help myself from chasing them, so they prayed for him, they asked it to be broken off from. And the third guy goes, okay, my sin is I'm really into gossip and I can't wait to get out of here. <laughs> I don't recommend confessing your sin to just anybody and everybody, right? I don't recommend that. I recommend finding someone who you can trust to confess your sins. Because the thing is with sin, <clears throat> sin has this amazing ability to create tension within ourselves and tension in our conscience that actually kills the faith that we need to receive from God. And when you've got sin in your heart, it seems to separate you from God. It makes you not really believe God. It it, it stops you from believing that I know he's a good God, but he surely can't accept me because I've got sin in my heart. There's an easy way to deal with it, and as simple as this, just repent. It's the quickest way to get into the presence of God, and that is just to confess your sin and be done with it. Don't go back to it, just be done with it. And then the third thing he says is this, commanding righteousness. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The King James says, the the prayer of a righteous person availeth much. That means it can do a lot of stuff. Now, when I think about prayer, prayer is something 
that, that, that we're interceding. We're asking for something with God. We're communicating with him. And I have to ask myself this question. Who does God want to have a conversation with? Who does he want to listen to? Whose prayers would he want to answer? Now, we just said earlier on that if you're someone who is a gambler and you're gambling your money and then you say, hey, God, could you, could you spot me some more money? Could you give me more money? God is saying, no, I don't want to give you more because you're not acting in the way that you should act. I'm gonna protect you from yourself. I'm gonna protect you from giving you more and I'm not gonna give you any more. God doesn't want to give us more from something, give us more when we're not handling the stuff that we already have. You see, God, I believe, wants to speak with someone who is righteous. What does that mean? Righteous means two different things. Righteousness is something that comes in two different ways. Number one, well, righteousness basically means to be in right standing, right? To be in right standing. And it comes in two different ways. The first one is it's imputed upon you. It's imputed to you. What does imputed mean? Imputed basically means that when Jesus went to the cross, his death and sacrifice said sorry for what we have and what we are. It basically paid for our sins. That's why old-time Christians will say that we're covered in the blood of Christ, right? That means that the blood of Christ has gotten me forgiveness. The blood of Christ has basically wiped out my, my debts that I have with God. It's cleared my conscience. It's cleared my history. It's gotten rid of all my past, and it's basically said that I am now in relationship with God. Nothing Bad can keep us from heaven and nothing good can actually get you there. Only the blood of Christ can put you back into relationship with God. Someone shout hallelujah. Listen, it's imputed upon us. We can't make it ourselves, but it's imputed upon us. But the second thing that righteousness is that it comes to us as is not just through imputation, but it's also through impartation. It's imparted to us. That means the Holy Spirit gives us the power to do what is right. This is why James was so upset with these believers, these confessors of Jesus Christ who had received the blood of Christ, had received his righteousness, but weren't acting out the way that a Christian should. Weren't acting in the way that a little Christ should. Christian means little Christ. They're meant to act the way that Christ would act. They went living out the kingdom of God, and he's like, no, 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 I am mad at this because you have the power to live out the kingdom of God. You're no longer under condemnation. You're no longer under bondage. Change your habits and change your behavior. Change your mindset and do the right things you're meant to do. Sometimes we believe what's right, but our body starts taking control and just does what we feel is right. It's time to tell our body to shut up and sit down and do what it's told to do. Hello? It's time to tell our spirits to say, no, you will do what I tell you to do. Sorry, to tell your bodies, you will do what I tell you to do. You will submit yourself to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what James is driving at. I think of someone who I think is a blessed person, someone who I think carries a lot of righteousness, I could think of someone like Mother Teresa. If someone came up to me and said, hey, Peter, you need to have more patience in life. You need to be more merciful. We don't really receive that just from anybody. Part of us just goes, who do you think you are? And you're talking to me. That little part just jumps out of us. You get someone like Mother Teresa that comes up to you and says, Peter, I want to encourage you to be patient and to be merciful to those that are poor and don't have much in life. Woo, I got no argument with that. I got to receive from that woman. Why? Because she has the evidence in her life. The imparted righteousness is evident in her life. She is living it out. 
That's who God wants to have a conversation with. That's why the last scripture there is a prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Wow. Wow. I love it the way that James takes us. And it's like he takes the mic and he just drops it and he goes, do it. There's one word that is the most common in the book of James, two letters, D-O, do. That's the most common word in the book of James. So if there's anything you've gotten from this last month, I want to encourage you to just get out and do it. Don't do what you feel. Don't do what your body is screaming at you that really wants to do. Do the right thing. Do the kingdom of God. Do the works of Christ. Live it out. We can do it. You're going to get persecuted? Sure. Will you get fruit from this straight away? Absolutely not. You must have patience. But make sure that you do it because that's the one that God is going to trust with more wealth, more resources, more provision for the vision of Jesus Christ.